it's time for another episode of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes. Here's your host, Terrence McCauley. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Today, we're joined by New York Times number one best-selling author, James Rollins. He is here to talk about his latest novel, Cradle of Ice. James, thank you for being here. And why don't you tell us a little bit about your latest work? Well, the uh, current book is uh, Cradle of Ice is the second book in a four book fantasy arc. Uh, the first book, Starless Crown, came out last year. And uh, Cradle of Ice just got released uh, at the beginning of uh, February. And it's a sort of a big epic story. I, I grew up reading fantasy a lot. And I liked, to me, it was always, you know, if a, a fantasy was a, the longer it was, the better. If it's a doorstopper, all the better. If it's a multi-volume series, all the better. I like that, that, uh, that depth of storytelling and world building that you can achieve within the bulk of a fantasy novel. Uh, this right. uh, series is called a Moonfall Saga. And basically the story takes place on a tidally locked planet. That's a planet that circles its sun with one side always facing the sun. The other side's eternally in darkness. And mm -hmm. the only sort of livable lands of this world are the uh, that band between those two extremes, between fire and ice. Mm. And uh, as the story starts out in the first book, uh, there's a young girl, she has a prophecy, she sees the moon crashing into the planet and destroying all life. Now, uh, over the course of that first book, uh, she gets confirmation from some of the alchemists, the scientists of this world, who've also been noticing there's something odd going on with the moon. And at this point, though, there's a major war brewing across the crown, this livable climb between those extremes. So no one wants to hear prophecies of doom when war is afoot. So uh, no one listens to her. Then she's hunted, as is her uh, sort of band of allies that she puts together. It's up to them basically to find out, A, number one, is this prophecy true? Is the moon going to cr crash into the planet? And number two, when you're dealing with a level of society, basically a medieval level of society, how can they possibly do anything to stop the moon from crashing into the earth? And I call this a scientific fantasy because there's not a lot of true magic. Anything that seems magical to the people of this land, it basically has a scientific basis. Uh, there's there's so uh, there's not going to be any magical waving of a wand to save the moon from crashing to the planet. There's there's going to be a scientific reason uh, that they can accomplish to have this happen if it can happen. That's incredible. Now, I know that you said you grew up uh, reading fantasy novels, and I was wondering from an author's perspective, there's been a lot of fantasy novels and fantasy works on television and in sure. the movies lately. Uh, it took a lot of courage for you to uh, dip your foot into that genre, didn't it? It, it did and it didn't. Um, you know, it raised a few eyebrows amongst my uh regular James Rollins readers who expect these staccato pace, lean sort of uh, uh, scientific thrillers you know, with weird science and uh, historical mysteries that we delve into. And usually it's got a lot of military action. That, so this departure into fantasy seems, might seem like a, a, a weird, uh, you know, sidetrack for me to take. But actually, when I started my career as a writer, um, I sort of stumbled into going from unpublished to published with two different genres with two different publishing houses and actually for, for the first decade of my career I was writing a thriller every year 
and a fantasy every year. So I was actually uh, under a different pen name. I was writing fantasies for about a decade. But uh, because of Hiccup and publishing and because of uh, James Rollins became a little more popular than Mr. Clemens, my other pen name. And okay. uh, and so uh, Mr. Clemens sort of faded away. But I, I never gave up my sort of love of, of having that year where I can alternate between two different uh, genres. It was fun to... You know, work on a staccato place thriller, but when I was you know done with that, I was ready to sort of get into this more prose-rich world-building fantasy. And then once I was done with that, I was ready to get back to the staccato place thriller. So it's you know you're using a different set of a tool set for each type of uh, genre. Um, right. There's different uh, you know pros and cons of each uh, of each genre, and so it was uh, you know it's, it's fun stretching my literary legs by doing those two the two genre genres. So. You know, after another decade had passed and I hadn't been writing any fantasy, I had been building this idea for this world. It didn't start out as a fantasy, by the way. I just was reading a Scientific American article about tidally locked planets, these planets that circle their sun like our moon circles our planet, one side right. you know, in darkness, one side in brightness. And I was curious about that. And so I began wondering, you know, can life exist in a planet of that ex those extremes? So I talked to an astrobiologist and said, you know, can such a planet sustain life? And he was, oh, yeah, probably so. Because of the thermodynamics of that planet, there's probably going to be shifting of some of the cold air to the hot side and the hot side to the cold side. So there probably is going to be a temperate band between those two extremes where life mm -hmm. theoretically could exist. Well, that's cool. Added that to my idea box. Then I got thinking, well, what, what, what might life look like on that planet? And I began leaning on my veterinary background to think, you know, how might life evolve on such a, a planet of extremes? I talked to a xenobiologist to get their input on, on life in such a strange planet began sort of thinking about uh, what's the cast of characters, what's the threat to this world. And I found out that the world had been spinning and then stopped spinning over a millennia period of time. The moon probably is going to become unstable and one or two things will happen. Either it will drift away or mm -hmm. it will crash into the planet. So that's the, the justification is that, you know, it has been millennia since this world stopped spinning and now the, the moon threat is to do exactly that. Uh, and even in the book, if you flip through the pages, you'll see like biological sketches of some of the creatures I was just describing, where uh, I want to make it feel like you're reading like a historical treatise or, or a naturalist guide to this world as you're exploring the, this roller coaster of a story. So I worked with a uh, graphic artist who has a biology background. It was fun working with her because... You know, I can describe a creature in a book, but I leave it a lot to your imagination about the fine details, right. what that's going to be look like. But when she's got to draw it, she needs every detail. So she's like, well, how does, you know, what what's the length of the tail? Is that tail prehensile? Uh, is, is this creature's claws, are they hooked or are they straight? How long are they? Uh, huh. And so, you know, we look back, well, if it's arboreal, if it's a tree-dwelling type of creature, it probably has a prehensile tail and those, those hooks, those claws are probably hooked to help it. Uh, manipulate the environment so mm -hmm. uh you know we went back and forth with those details with hers to, to, to make the creatures come alive i didn't want to just put a you know a dragon on a, on a mountaintop because that's where dragons belong i wanted these creatures right. to come out of the environment so that they make sense that they would evolve into these environmental niches that make sense right well and and you know in reading your the bulk of your work you are quite comfortable with the scientific element of storytelling because before you're Sigma Force novels. You did write about explorers and uh, archaeologists. So this yep. isn't all that much of a departure from some of your earlier work, is it? 
you know, whenever I teach writing, I, I tell writers they should be writing from a point of passion, you should be writing stuff that excites you, whether it's the genre that you love to read, or whether it's like for my first book, Subterranean, it takes place almost entirely underground in a cavern system two miles beneath Antarctica. But I was an avid ca caver. You started that in college, continued that, still continue that, matter of fact, um, just trying to get in shape for another caving expedition that I'm going to be doing in a couple months. And uh, the so again, I love that. So my first book is all about caving. Uh, when I moved to the to the West Coast, I took up diving. So Deep Fathom, my third novel, all is about you know it's all takes place underwater. Right. So it, you know, it, and then in my list of things I wanted to be when I grew up, you know, veterinarian was at the top. I would definitely want to be veterinarian, but right, right. below that was ar archaeologist. So you know, there's a part of me that always loved archaeology. You know, I still subscribe to a lot of like Smithsonian Magazine and Archaeology Magazine. Just fascinated with like, it's, uh, you know, all the mysteries that are that are locked into history that I can hopefully solve within the pages of a novel. So right. uh, again, passionate about that. So that feeds into my writing in all aspects. Yes, exactly right, and it's and it definitely shows. How did you go from those early books uh, that embrace your passion? to the uh, Sigma Force novels? It was uh, accidental, more than, than purposeful. Uh, I was getting a lot of pressure from a publishing house to, to do a series. Uh, like All my mm -hmm. first five or six, seven novels are all standalones. Uh, they're not connected to one another. And I liked that. I liked having individual cast of characters. I liked you know, creating these, these new characters in each book. Um, right. And I had a problem with series. Um, and I've described this occasionally in book talks. I, I call it the Jessica Fletcher syndrome. Jessica Fletcher from Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> right. You know, here's this woman from Cabot Cove that's always stumbling over dead bodies. You know, I've never stumbled over a dead body. So eventually your suspension of disbelief becomes strained. Like, why is that woman always stumbling over dead bodies? To me, the only resolution to that series should have been the, the final episode with the re revelation that Jessica Fletcher was a serial killer. And that she's been murdering all these people herself and then framing everybody all along. That it I think sense. someone wanted to do that on the show, actually, but they yeah, didn't do they, that. But you're they, right. They, sh they should have. But it's also hard to me. <laughs> it's hard to maintain jeopardy also in a serial in a series character, because if somebody puts a, a gun against Jessica Fletcher's head in an episode, as much as you might want them to tr pull that trigger, you know, it's never going to happen because she's in right. next week's episode. So it doesn't feel like she's in jeopardy. So I, that was sort of at the back of my head. So, you know, I read a lot of series characters and, and they always seem to be stumbling into problems. And, and when they're in jeopardy, I never really feel like they're in jeopardy. Um, mm -hmm. So I didn't want to do a series. And then I wrote what I thought was a standalone, Sandstorm, where I first introduced Sigma and Painter Crow when he's still a field agent. Um, they're not the main characters. The main characters is a different cast of characters. But when I was writing that novel, I realized, I, A, number one, I liked the idea of these field operatives for DARPA that are protecting the world against various threats. I like Painter Crow. So when I finished the book, I thought, you know, I missed them. I'd like to be able to, to, to have Painter appear in another novel. And I got, thought, well, wait a second. If I use Sigma Force as my series, I can base a series around a group rather than an individual. So the right. Jeopardy can come from many different directions. Me as an author, I can shift the spotlight onto different characters. So uh, one character can come to the forefront in one novel and uh, fade into the background of the next. Another one can come forward. But also I can maintain Jeopardy because Sigma Force can always recruit new members. So I can knock off a, a significant character because they can always recruit new ones. 
So I got right. around that gesticle Fletcher syndrome. So I proposed, you know, spinning sigma force from sandstorm into an ongoing series. Map of bones introduces the, the main cast that's going to be carrying the series forward, even though they've been, like I said, not all of them survive all the way through the, the current book. Uh, because I right. like the fact it surprised people with, with sudden and unexpected deaths. Right, right. And, and that's what keeps the series fresh. I mean, it's, it's funny that, you know, you want to write a series because and the publishers are right that they're popular, but at the yep. same time, you can get trapped into um, a suspension of belief or uh, you do limit yourself because also too, people might be hesitant to buy book seven of the 13 book series if they haven't read the first seven or there's parts of the future books that might not interest them. So it's, yeah, it's, I, I, it's an interesting conundrum. I don't think anybody's, except for me, have, have read my Sigma Force in order. Um, they usually just stumble upon whatever edition happens to be out at the, at the airport bookstore and they, they pick up a copy and hope that they like it. Because uh, I basically, you know, build in uh, anything that you need to know about these characters, I'm going to tell you in each novel. So that uh, as you're reading it, you're not going to feel lost. Yes, there's you know backstory that is you if you if you enjoy that book, you can go back and 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 read the, the prior novels to fill mm -hmm. in that backstory in greater depth. And there's uh you know in order there's an arc of character that develops over the course of the series. But it's I want to welcome everybody in with every edition. I don't I don't even like numbering my books single series books because I, I don't want you to think that it has to be read in order. Right. And also you right. mentioned about. Uh, uh, you know, staying feeling fresh. That's the other reason I liked having a group and having to be able to, to shift that spotlight. You know, it keeps me excited about the characters. I think if I was writing one character over and over and over again, I might get a little tired of that character. By having right. it a group, it keeps me fresh. But even like, as I've been doing two books a year for the entirety of my career, uh, before right. it was a fantasy and the thriller, eventually it was other books, whether it was a sort of a gothic vampiric series I did with Rebecca Cantrell, whether it was the uh, Right. Uh, some I did a middle school series. Uh, I like basically doing something else for the other half of the year, so that when I'm ready to return to the characters, I'm I'm anxious to return to those characters. It's not like oh my god, I got to write those characters again. Uh, right. By by diverging somewhere else for a while, uh, then you know, when it comes time to to write my next Sigma novel, I am excited to return to that to that world and those characters again. Right, and and, and a project like this one with Cradle of Ice and, and your fantasy series that just will help people don't understand that, but people, but it will help your future series that they are already used to, you know? Exactly. Yeah. You know, so my, my, my goal basically is, is, is to entertain, you know, whether right. it's a thriller or whether it's a fantasy, you know, uh, I have a tendency to, to even my fantasies that it's not a, they're not slow paced. Let's put it that way. They're uh, they're big, big roller coaster adventures. Similarly, if you read a Rollins Stigma novel, you're going to say, you know, you'll read this and go, I. You see those Rollins esque elements of of you know cliffhangers and sudden deaths and weird creatures and and the the science and the history of this world is also incorporated, similar to what I do with the the Stigma novel. It's just you know in a different world. Exactly right. Yeah, and and it's definitely one that's entertaining. What do you still because you've had such a long career and a successful one, do you still get a thrill when you walk through an airport or a bookstore and you see one of your books featured of, right there? Of course. I would imagine you still do. Oh yeah. I mean my only goal when I, you know, I was at my own veterinary clinic for 15 years and I was just writing as a hobby. And my only goal was basically first to maybe to 
get a short story published. Then my ambitions got a little larger to, wouldn't it cool to walk into a bookstore and see my book on the shelf? Uh, you know, now you know, I've got, I think I'm working on my 46th, or, I have to count, 46th or 47th novel right now. So, uh, you know, now it's not just a, a single book, it's like a bookshelf. But uh, right. <laughs> so that, that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, but it's, every time a book comes out, there is no doubt a significant amount of joy to, you know, to see the, a pile of your books in a bookstore. And you see somebody, when I go on these tours, I have a tendency to, you know, maybe spy a little bit around that where my stack of books are while I'm waiting for my event to start. And I'd like to overhear people, I'll pick up a book, they'll talk about it, or, you know, there's some some you know avid reader that will be telling somebody else about it. I'd like to hear what, you know, secretly eavesdrop upon them and what, you know, why are they reading me? You know, what is right. what what is exciting them enough that if they're talking to somebody else, what's what are they talking about? Uh that actually helps me give some indication of, you know, uh what's working and theoretically what's not working with my with my storytelling. Right. And I would always goes to my next question, which was, do you um, often get a lot of feedback from your readers and does it impact what you're working on at that point? Because I know for me, oh, I, yeah. when I get feedback, it, it definitely helps change the arc of the kind of story I'm looking to tell the next time. Oh, definitely. I mean, I'm always looking for feedback. Uh, a, you know, the, if you go to my website, there's a, you know, ask Jim a question, you know, that, and I read everything that comes to me. I answer as much as I can. and. Uh, but also, you know, I like social media. It's fun to uh, throw things out there and just see what people are saying. Um, for instance, uh, at the end of my last Sigma novel, Kingdom of Bones, uh, Tucker, my military, uh, my uh, former army ranger, has got a military war dog. And he uh, is sort of foisted upon him as this young recalcitrant puppy that, that's been rejected by the uh, military war dog training uh, group out in Lackland Air Force Base. And so he's just basically ad adopts it. Um, it's an ornery little tyke. And uh, so I thought, you know, I, I don't know what the name of this dog is. And, and I was going to name him in that book, but mm -hmm. I just couldn't think of a good name. So I finished the book and left his left his name, uh, left him untitled. And uh, rather than me try to figure it out, I just put on social media and said, you know, name my dog, uh, you know, just give me ideas, you know, so I've had at this point 1200, 1200 names that have been uh, tossed my way for that dog. So wow. uh, not the Sigma novel, but the Sigma after that will be the revelation of which name I picked. So it's fun, <laughs> it's fun, you know, kicking it around like that. I've done title, you know, opinions with the, with the readership out there. Uh, it's one book. You don't know if, if Gray, the, sort of the main character of the Sigma Force series is in bed with somebody. Uh, you don't know right. which woman he's in bed with. Is it Rachel or is it Seishan? And I don't tell you. Uh, I didn't know, but I put it out there. Who do, you, <laughs> who do you think he's in bed with at the end of the novel? Then I like hearing what people were saying and why they thought it was that woman. So that was a great deal of fun just to, to bandy it about like that. Sure, sure. No, it definitely is. It's always good to have interaction. Even if it's not always positive, it's always good to have interaction. With, of course, yeah. Good, good or bad, it, 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 tell, it gives you information. Yeah, it definitely helps. Um, your books, you strike me as the, um, I don't know if you ever watched them, but the early Mission Impossible episodes, the first season. Sure. And um, that, yeah, those were great. And and the thing with your books is, is that you do have a core set of characters, but you do a great job of uh, revolving them with duty and, and, and different types of spotlights. I would imagine you do the same thing here 
with your uh, fantasy series that you're working on now. Yeah, it's definitely a uh, multi-character, multi-point of view type of storytelling. Um, and I, I do like being able to, again, hop into different heads. Uh, being the fact that this is sort of a big global adventure, I just need to have, uh, you know, get snapshots of what's happening, you know, during this global war that's beginning uh, as these characters are beginning their quest. Uh, Cradle of Ice, the, the uh, second book from the title, you might guess, the, you know, there's a large chunk of the main cast has to go into that, that, that eternally dark frozen half of the world uh, to achieve a goal to help them further their, call, their, their goal to... Um, Try to find a way to stop the moon from crashing into the planet. So, right. uh, you know, I, I need that multi viewpoint to, to really carry off a a global fantasy like this. You certainly do, and also it looks like uh, based on the cover, you also have a dragon in it, and the dragon always helps. Uh, actually, it's a, it's a it's a, uh, it's a giant bat. A giant actually. bat. Okay. Yeah. Looks yeah. great though. I mean, it's a great cover, and it definitely it's a great cover. In. Yep. And and uh, what's inside it is great as well. What about uh, what's next for that particular series? I'm um, just finishing up the third volume. Again, it's be a four-volume series, so the third one is almost done. Uh, the tender title, uh, hopefully, that's what will end up as as is a, a, a dragon of, of of black glass. A dragon of black glass is the tender title. I've got Tides of Fire, which is the next Sigma novel coming out in August. I describe mm -hmm. that as a, it's a disaster movie in book format. I think right. I do the most destruction that I've ever done in a novel in that book. Um, so I'm very excited to get in people's hands. My editor loved it. So hopefully everybody will too. Um, and then I'm working on uh, just finishing my research for my 2024 Sigma novel. So that's what's fantastic. That's what's in the, in the lineup. Just a little bit busy. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned disaster movies. We haven't seen a, any of those uh, in recent memory. We've had a lot of the comic book movies and then, yep. you know, zombies. Uh, you know, we're due for a good Poseidon adventure or a towering inferno, uh, kind Thanks. of. I and I love those. You know, it, I just, you know, I, I remember this was a basis for, and I've mentioned this in, in Tides of Fire is one of the inspirations was way back in the past. I watched a movie called, uh, East of, what's the, uh, Java, I can't remember the name. I just dropped, dropped a blank on it, but it's a big, it's a big disaster movie set about the, the the explosion of the uh, of Krakatoa. Oh, it's Krakatoa East of Java is the name of the movie. Oh, okay. Um, so I haven't seen it's, that. Uh, it was like from the seventies or you know maybe even the sixties. It was very old, you know, very cheesy nowadays when you watch it again. But uh, right. I remember as a kid watching it on the, on the big screen, and I was just like mesmerized by this big volcanic, uh, you know, destruction and chaos that ensued. So, uh, Tides of Fire is a it's a big uh, tectonically insane novel yeah yeah and those are fun to write too because like we were saying earlier it's all about broadening your uh your creative chops even 40 some odd books into a career exactly i mean that's kind of goes back to you know writing for that point of passion i just i can you know touch myself you know i remember when i was a little kid just the excitement i had with that i was trying to capture that in that novel you know can mm -hmm. i create in a novel format my experience when I was a kid watching that film. That was my, you know, at the back of my mind, my goal of, of uh, what I want to achieve with that novel. Right, because a lot of people forget that just because we're authors doesn't mean, or writers doesn't mean that we're, we were fans first of something. And of course, uh, yeah. it's important to carry that through our work. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, you know, if you're not a passionate reader of that genre, you probably shouldn't be writing that genre. I think right. it's important that, you know, you, you know, 
what's been done, what's going on currently, what is, is uh, old and or out of date or the tropes that no longer work. Uh, right. Unless you're reading deeply into that genre, yeah, you're, you're just not going to write well in it. Exactly right. Exactly right. Well, I mean, you've got a lot going on. A lot has happened and a lot's going to happen in the future. I was wondering, how, do you, how can people follow you on uh, the internet and social media? Well, the, my, my website, I, I call it the Encyclopedia of James Rollins. You know, I've got a Q&A about if you have an interest in writing, just a general q and I've got uh, all information about the books, about some of the research behind the books. Um, if you want the day in, day out, you know, I'm on uh, social media, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I haven't done, I haven't done a, a TikTok yet, but I, I don't know, think I will ever, but yeah, I don't think I'll be on BookTok. Yep. So <laughs> I think I'll, I'll stick with those three. That's enough. That's quite a bit. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today, James. And I really appreciate it. And um, for everybody out there, this has been uh, Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes with James Rollins on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And don't forget to visit bestthrillerbooks.com for the best thriller reviews out there. See you later, everybody. You have been listening to Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes with host Terrence McCauley on Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. <laughs>